Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. This is uh, Jeff Thomas. I've got a special guest for you today, Kevin Garland, CEO of Mount Air, which is the fourth largest chicken company in America with 10,000 employees, close to $4 billion in revenue. Kevin, thanks for being here today. I'm glad to be here with you, Jeff. Thanks. Well, this is fun. Uh, Kevin and I know each other. Kevin used to live in Houston, and so we've known each other. We're actually sitting in Utah and in Kevin's beautiful place here in God's creation. And we thought we'd get together and, and just share this conversation with you. Kevin, usually the way we get started is just tell us a little about where you grew up and what your family was like, that kind of thing. Sure. Well, I born in Memphis, Tennessee and lived there till I was 12. We moved to Little Rock, Arkansas that year and uh, grew up with a, frankly, a pretty stable home, pretty average, uh, modest, very modest family. We didn't have a lot, but we had enough. And yeah, I guess I would say in high school, I was somewhere between a redneck. Let me say that again. <laughs> I was somewhere between a no neck, <laughs> as my mother in law used to call me, and a knucklehead. So <laughs> to project where I was to where we are now, it's almost impossible to say that you would have gone from there to here. Well, now, when I think of no neck, I think that means athlete. So, and I know you're a right. fitness guy. So has that always been the case? Were, were you involved in sports a lot as a kid? Yeah. So I loved football. I was mediocre at it, but I tried really hard and worked really hard at it, which made me decent. And yeah, fitness and particularly working out, lifting weights. So I'm still a little bit of a no neck. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, was at the gym lifting this morning. So exactly. Still part of our personality. Okay. So now where does college take you? Hmm. So I went to Rhodes College in Memphis with two objectives. One was to be a doctor because they had an outstanding pre-med program. Two was to play football because I got a football scholarship there. And I quit football within the first month. <laughs> so <laughs> it just didn't feel right. Mostly, I miss my girlfriend, fiance, now wife. And so that didn't, didn't feel right. And my second semester, biology two, at the last moment that you could drop biology, I had a 37. And my advisor said, you know, to be a doctor, you really, you got to pass biology. It's just, it's like prerequisite 101. And so very quickly learned that Football and biology and doctor wasn't the right path for me. Uh, I had a phenomenal experience and, you know, kind of figured it out through college. Um, ended up in business, studying business, which just clicked for me. And just everything kind of made sense. And uh, I, I changed from football to rugby, which was <laughs> played rugby in college, which was a much more party kind of atmosphere for uh, anyway, it was still kind of continued a little bit of the knuckleheadedness through college, but towards the end of college, started figuring it out yeah. and did well kind of my last two years, which set me up. Then to get married in right after college to Cheryl, my now wife of 32 years, and to go to Vanderbilt for grad school to get my MBA, which 
was an important step in the future. Yeah. And what was your goal going in? So you go into undergrad thinking you're going to be a doctor. You come out with a business degree, do pretty well, get married young. Okay. Yeah. Now we're going to, you go right into graduate school. I, did. Did I didn't for- work, which is very uncommon. And uh, in fact, I really had to kind of twist anybody's arm to take you from directly. I'd done well enough and tested well enough that they were willing to do that. But so, yeah, I went straight from undergrad to grad school and um, to Vanderbilt. And I, I really excelled there. I finished, you know, I, I figured it out. So I finished yeah. very high in the class and, and set myself up for a better path. Did you already know what you wanted to do coming out? Or should I say going into your MBA program? Or did that kind of shift? Or You know, I thought at one point that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I didn't know really what that meant but it sounded attractive and having your own business sounded attractive. What I found was I was a little too risk averse to be a true entrepreneur, at least at that age. And I probably still am to be a true entrepreneur where you're willing to put everything online every day and start something different. So I really didn't. What I found there was that finance and accounting, specifically finance and corporate finance kind of mindset, just, I understood it, every element of it really quickly and was drawn to it. But when I'm thinking of the picture that comes to my mind, if corporate finance and how that sort of fits together, that mindset, that's really interesting tied from what you just said. So maybe not taking all the risk of, you know, cashing everything in and going all in on a business, but how to finance an organization. Yeah. So usually that's using other people's money as right. well as your own. Right. Okay. But that actually sort of plays into where you uh, landed professionally. So what was your first job out of, out of business school? Well, I went to work in investment banking for Stevens in Little Rock, Arkansas, which is where we were from. And it's interesting because I had some, what you would consider to be more attractive job offers coming out. And, but coming back home to Little Rock had some appeal going to Stevens, which was, kind of the premier job in Little Rock, frankly, was attractive. But so we did that. We came back, took that job, and I was an investment analyst or, or an investment banking analyst. And I quit after nine months. So, and it was doing great and I actually kind of enjoyed it, but there was another analyst there. And at the age of 24, the two of us quit to buy a company. And so we were we had identified this company called Bighorn Saddles in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I don't even know if it's still around, but to buy it. 24 years old, didn't know what we were doing, thought we had some money lined down, thought we had a process. And within 30 days of that, the deal fell apart. Oh, so. But we've already quit our job. We already quit our job. <laughs> Oops. You know, and. And oh, by the way, all those other job offers that I had coming out of grad school, you call those people. Yeah, they're poof. You're, you're now kind of damaged. You did what? You quit your job? <laughs> well, I don't think we got. But I got some work. great saddles. No, yeah, I don't exactly. even have great yeah, saddles because yeah, the deal fell through. Yeah. The deal fell through. So, so that actually set, I think that was a huge point of demarcation mm. and redirection for me because I went into a very deep, anxiety and depression. This was in 1992 and 93. As I say, it was 
back before anxiety and depression was popular. It was <laughs> at a time where people didn't talk. About no, you didn't talk about it. it. You didn't talk about it. And I don't. You know, people still aren't good at talking about it. Don't you think? Yeah, I'm, it's I'm getting sure better. That's right. It's getting better, but it's but you know it's back then nobody nobody that's, I didn't that's know a fact. Yeah, I didn't you know, know it was, and I couldn't even have the internet to Google. No, that's true. All I knew is I was shaking profusely. I couldn't get out of bed. I'm sweating. My, wow. I couldn't control my thoughts, and so that through the next. And this went on for months. It seemed like years, by the way. When you're in the middle of that, it is. It was really tough, debilitating to a totally certain extent. Yeah. Now I was not hospitalized, yeah, yeah. which I think by today's terms you probably would have been, oh. because you know. And so I got connected with a a gentleman who started mentoring me a little bit and sharing. Uh, and I was I was a Christian already, although I would say that I wasn't very actively practicing. I certainly didn't put my full faith in God. And so he started mentoring me a little bit. And I started going to a Christian counselor and I started reading the Bible. And mm. I'd wake up every morning at 4 a.m. in a cold sweat, shaking. Wow. And all I could do was reach for the Bible next to my bed and read the scripture over and over about, you know, about anxiety and about God's promises and and a lot of do not fears. A lot of do not fears. I had every, I still have that Bible, by the way. I oh, still wow. have all my notes from that. Mm. And sometimes I still got to go back to it, by the way. But yeah. it slowly over the next four to six months, a combination of reading the Bible, counseling, medicine got me stable. And I would say it was a full year before I wasn't back to 100%. So it, it was a long time. And meanwhile, are we unemployed? Uh, I was unemployed and I was doing a little bit of consulting. You know, God opened up a couple of doors and really those doors are, played a big role in my healing. Mm. And so, but the door that was open, and this is, remember, we've moved back to Little Rock a year earlier, which we thought was going to be our home because that's where we we're from, our family were. Yeah. Well, the door that opened was in Midland, Texas, the desert. <laughs> so Literally. Literally. And to go do M&A, which I had been a little bit of training in, mm -hmm. not much, um, at Stevens and at uh, Midland, Texas. And so I didn't even have the strength, honestly, to say, yes, let's go do this. I was still in my weakest point. My wife is the one who said, and she's from Little Rock. And, you know, we, we were, by the way, she was pregnant, six months pregnant oh, with our first child. So that everybody's family was all excited about that. She said, we got to go. You know, we got to. Get this train moving. We got to go. Yeah. And, I, and I'm sitting there going, you know, probably in tears saying, okay, if you say so, we'll do it. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we did, we moved to Midland, Texas. And um, really again, from there to here is almost um, indescribable what God did. And, and, you know, I don't, it's uncomfortable for me to talk about success, personal success. So I just want you and people who listen to this to know that I don't do this. It's very uncomfortable. Not, not only because it's awkward to me, but also because, you know, we're just told to be humble. And so my ability here to talk about success is really only to encourage others and to glorify God. Not because I can't, I can't boast on my own. And I truly believe that. I can only boast in what God's done. Well, I think one of the things we always talk about and you constantly tell me is it's just amazing what God's done. Yeah. So. I think the way we look at this is, is you're just telling God's story through you, not 
found in your own chest, but praising him for that path. And, yeah. and I love that you shared that. Well, because uh, again, you know, at heart, I'm still a knucklehead. As my, we all are. As my dad would say. So, yeah, this is uh, right. We all are. Okay, so we get out to Midland. I think one of the things you and I have always talked about is that, you know, by telling your story of the, everybody relates to the, you know, we talked we talk before we started recording. Nobody's story is up and to the right mm. in a direct line. Mm. And so I just love that you share this story of uh, the struggle with anxiety and those things. While it is, you know, more prevalent to talk about it today than it was 30 years ago when it was a bigger issue for you. I still think there's a bunch of people, you know, walking on treadmill, listening to this who are in that place. And so I think, you know, some hope that it shows to come out. And then when you're sharing your story about the success, we talk about this all the time that you're always quick to give God the credit. This is just his story through you, not, not being braggadocious about what's happened, but, but I think it does give people hope. Who might be in that. Well, that's the only reason I really am comfortable talking about that. Yeah. Because again, I, I, I cannot boast in my own success because I, I know my own weaknesses. I know I'm not smart enough. I know I'm not uh, wise enough. I know I'm not charming enough, you know, go down the list to have, to have gotten to where we've gotten to. So that can only be done by God's plan and trying to follow that plan. So if you go, you know, one, I think one of the interesting things about Midland, we found a church there and we started for the first time tithing, which giving 10%, which I didn't know how much I was supposed to give. And I still don't know, you know, I'm not sure exactly about biblically about tithing versus, you know, giving X or Y amounts. I'll just tell you my journey. But we started giving 10%. And And I don't really understand this, and it's almost hard for the math to work, but I'll tell you. It's God math. It's not human math. I'll tell you what happened. From that point on, for the next eight years, and this crossed a couple of jobs, and I'll go more in detail, but my income doubled for eight years in a row. And so you get to pretty good math on that pretty quickly. Yes, you can yeah. do that at home. Do that math at home. Yeah, at the age of 35, this right. came into the age of 31. And a lot of success working at Parker and Parsley in Midland, Texas, and then at Enron for seven years, where I had a lot of success, frankly, and it was uh, and also was very protected by some of the bad stuff because that could have gone very wrong. I was there until the day of bankruptcy. In fact, they asked me to stay on as part of the leadership team after bankruptcy, which I did not do. So I both had success there and also uh, was protected from, from the bad stuff that, that could have happened. And, you know, and that took me to the age, I think, of 31 years old. And, and then from at that point, transitioned the day of bankruptcy. If you can imagine, I stepped out and then on the day of bankruptcy at a very high, very high job there to stepping into in a partner at a private equity firm, a Sterling Group, which was really had tremendous success in the 80s and 90s, but in the early 2000s, got a little sleepy. You well, know? the founder <laughs> yes, getting older, right? Well, that, the original founder had actually long retired and he passed soon thereafter, but even some of the other people would come in. They, you know, they were later in their career and they had had tremendous success and didn't want to work you know, as, as hard as we did. So we, me and a couple of others, set out to rebuild the Sterling Group. And I think we did over my 18 years that I was there. 
I think we built it to one of the best private equity firms in the country. Not yeah. the biggest, but one of the best. And lots of secrets in how we did that. But so that was kind of the continued projection, progression. And by the way, you know, my income and success continued to grow at very significant amounts. What so um if I got the timeline right, sort of 31, sort of in your 30s, it was when you started the tithing thing, right? No, I started the tithing when we were 24. 24. Yeah. So from 24 to 31 is this when this eight time, you know, it's crazy. Eight years of doubling, you know, year after year. And so. And then you're and in. Then your, I go into to a Sterling Group. Okay. In and, your early 30s? And I was 31. 31. Yeah. And I was there for about uh, 19 years. 19, 19 years. years. And, you know, if we continued to have success beyond what we deserved, but also we continued to give beyond what we should. And, and I'll tell you the progression there as well, or not beyond what we should, but beyond what really made sense to a lot of people. So we, we, we were given 10%. And I will tell you that I have had a lifelong struggle with money. I think it's a... a, a probably a degree of insecurity on how I was raised and what we had or didn't have as I was young. So I had an unhealthy approach to money. And the way I addressed that unhealthy approach was in my giving. It was almost like a self-discipline or to help myself overcome or sacrifice this kind of unhealthy obsession I have. With the word I have come to mind is antidote almost. Absolutely. Perfectly said. Okay. Yeah. You, you obviously was better. English, no, the way you English, said it is perfect. English but. major than I was. And so what we started doing was instead of giving 10%, we started giving 20%. <laughs> okay. And then instead of 20%, we started giving 30%. <laughs> and it got to be really, you know, big dollars to yeah. those years, at least for me. But it still was not the right antidote because here, even though I was submitting, I was praying, I was working on it. And I think I, I heard some other people who were more advanced than me in this concept, Alan Barnhart and others talk about how they had approached it. And it was a little late for me to do some of the things they had done, but I had my own path to, to follow because the more, the more I gave, let's say 30%, the more I focused, I still focused on the other 70%. How much could pie could I make? How big could I make pie? And in doing so, and so focused on the objective, I lost sight of what mattered. I could lose sight of what mattered. And, and therefore saw people, people as objects rather than people. People to, as objects to achieve what the goal I, I had set out. And the same time I was doing the process of doing a study about Jesus describing how we're supposed to love others. And I also had a 360 review done on myself. This is, I was probably in my late 30s. And this all came together to say, okay, the people and God's plan is what matters. Don't worry about the money. Stop worrying about the money. Stop worrying even about the objective. Work for God's plan. Work for excellence. The results will come. That's up to him. And part of what we did as part of that is we we capped our income to say we won't keep more than X dollars a year and the rest will give it. So that then it's all got, I don't, it's not 30-70 split or even a 50-50 split. It's, you know, it's all going to, to really God's purpose except for what we keep. Now, we tried that. The government makes it very hard because you can only tax deduct 
you know, 50, 60 percent, you know, blah, 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 you know, the CARES Act, all that gets complicated. But that attitude yeah. is helpful. Yes. And, and we've maintained that attitude. And yeah. so, you know, now today and a couple of years in the CARES Act, when you give away 100 percent, we did. And, and but more more generally, you know, 60 percent, I think, is what you can do. And we strive for that. What I think is so interesting is we were talking earlier about that early phase where you have this, you know, psychological setback, career setback, all those things are triggers. You start coming out, you start tithing. I just think that's an amazing story of eight years of doubling. Folks Mm -hmm. do the math at home. And then you sort of, you know, and I wrote down, I was just wrote down Malachi 310, right? We were talking about it earlier. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And yeah. God, God doesn't make a lot of promises that are mm-hmm. so direct about things, yeah. but that, you know, he'll make your cup overflow. And that doesn't mean it's money. We're not, we were talking earlier, it's not a prosperity gospel thing, but it might be joy, you know, closeness to him. All of those things are awesome. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's money yeah. too. I don't know. Along yeah. the way, but. I can't explain it. But then, and then you have this next season, and I think this is super important too. One of the things I love about your story is you've got that early tough time, obedience, and then now you're talking into the kind of the next level stuff. Yeah. Okay, well, now what do I do? And we were yeah. talking about how your balance sheet can kind of become, uh, you know, its own business to run. And then it, then you got to think about where to give it mm-hmm. effectively, stewarding mm-hmm. the giving. You mind sharing a, a thought or two about how you think about? where to give, just for, at least for you and Cheryl? Yeah. So as the giving became a bigger part, I, and I'm a strategic guy, right? So I, I think strategic. Great point. So it was probably 20 years ago where we were giving enough that we decided we needed to have a strategic plan for our giving. And we started with a mission statement. We started with what matters to us and where are we going to give and invest. And for us, it was faith-based organizations that help the poor and children in our local areas. And that was kind of the first step. And so we built our giving strategy. So then you just start going and pounding the pavement, meeting those groups and seeing where to invest. But that's a good geographic. Yeah, it was manageable. Now we lived in Houston, so it was pretty good job. Plenty of need. Many millions of people there. So you had pretty sizable. And, and so, and that was reinforced by my encounter with Calvin, which you know, maybe we'll talk about that for a minute. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I was at the bus station. My daughter was going back and forth to college. She liked to take the bus. <laughs> and so I was at the bus station waiting to pick her up on a Friday night. And around the bus station in downtown Houston, a lot of homeless people, at, you know, asking for things. And, and so this guy comes up to me and says, actually, I think I went up to him. Just stand there. I said, hey, you know, what's your name? And mm-hmm. I just started talking to him. Right. And, and his, his name was Calvin Morris. And just thinking about it. So it turned out Calvin was my age. He grew up in a town maybe an hour from where I did. And he was living on the streets. And, you know, I just was struck immediately that, you know, he could have been me and I could have been Right, him. right. Just about, you know, one split second. And it gave me just a deep thinking and compassion for him. So I, I, anyway, I gave him a little bit of money. We had a conversation, went about my way. Well, I took Mary Elizabeth, my daughter, back to the bus station Sunday night. And my son, who was about 
10 at the time was with me and he had been there the first time. And I said, Hey, let's see if we can find Calvin. So sure enough, Calvin was still there. So I said, Calvin, what are you doing? And he looked at me like I was crazy. What do you mean I'm doing? I'm sitting here doing what I do every day, you know? And uh, I said, do you want to go get something to eat? So he's kind of suspiciously (laughs) said, yes, we went to dinner. And that began what has now been a 10 year friendship. And Calvin was, you know, Calvin had had a very tough life. Uh, He'd been in jail for an extended period of time and he was living on the streets. And I just, that night after taking him to dinner, I couldn't take him back to the streets. I took him to a hotel and I said, we're going to figure this out together. And I got him some groceries and he's probably looking around like, what in the world's going on? And also when you live on the streets, your mind isn't very clear. So, you know, he, you really are just in a kind of state survival of mode confusion. Yeah, just okay. state of confusion. So we, anyway, over the, my point is for this is that over the next year, I walked with Calvin through life to understand what it was like who somebody who was homeless had been homeless things like, you know, Calvin didn't have an ID. He had no form of identification. If you don't have an ID, you can't get a job. Can't get an ID. You can't get a job. You can't get a place to stay. And you, it's almost impossible to get an ID because they make it difficult, understandably, because they don't want fake IDs for, you know, illegal immigrants or whatever else, you know, they've got to control the process. Well, if you're living on the streets and then you want to go get an ID, they want your birth certificate, they want your social security card, they want all this stuff that nobody has. And so it's an extensive process just to get an ID. It took us three months. And I, so wow. I, I start the journey with it. And I'm thinking, I'm a person with resources. Yeah, this would be quick. I can, you know, we'll have this at the end of the week. Three right. months later, right? we're still struggling to get Calvin an ID. So I went to all the places with him that helped people in his circumstance. And I got to know him. I stood in line with him in many places. Fortunately, one thing, he was a veteran and the, the services for veterans are better. Mm. And so we did a lot of that too. And so anyway, just walked with Calvin and it further affirmed my commitment to that group of people that, you know, they, they have a really tough journey. What I love about that story is so personal. And, and one of the things we talk about a lot is, you know, when we're trying to just help people think through, you know, where to give, it's like, you know, there's just kind of some simple questions like what breaks your heart? Mm-hmm. I mean, you walked up to him. So God was prompting you to, you started that relationship, frankly. Mm-hmm. And then just that pull and that empathy and that sensitivity to same age as me. I mean, by the grace of God, yeah, I took a different V in the road, mm-hmm. but one yeah. or two big decisions, maybe. Uh, yeah. Or just having been born to a different family. Absolutely. Right. Not because, Anything you know, I did. You didn't pick it. Right. Right. So I just love that. So I think paying attention, I think that's a great tip to somebody walking down the street listening to this. You know, if you're not sure where to give, yeah. even if it's same, not the same kind of dollar amounts, what are places that have helped you? Where do you have empathy? Where does it break your heart? Yeah. You know? So I love that. Well, I, and I've, I've tried to tell myself, and I don't do this particularly well, but I tell myself often, like the situation with Calvin, is to live life differently than other people do, or mm-hmm. then the mainstream tells us, here I would be leaving a negotiation on a private equity deal because I got to go help Calvin. Go wait in line. Literally. And so everybody, you know, I'm telling some of the people a story and they're like, what, what? are you doing? <laughs> right. You know, so live life differently. And there's, I just think there's lots of ways, if you say that to yourself, 
you'll be challenged. What does it mean to live life differently? And another story I remember is, so we lived in River Oaks, which many people probably know in Houston. And, and I remember when my son was 12, we fired the lawn service and we were cutting the yards ourselves. Well, I think we may have been the only family in River Oaks cutting the yard. So one day on a Saturday, we're out cutting the yard and you can't, you can't cut the yards on Saturday in River Oaks. You can only work during the week unless you're the homeowner. So River Oaks Patrol pulls up and, and my son's cutting the yard out the front. I'm doing weed eating in the back. And they tell him, I'm sorry, you can't, you know, you can't cut the yard. And I think he also had a shirt off. Which probably, you know, so, yeah. So, uh, so, you know, I came out there and they said, oh, you're the homeowner. Oh, well, yeah, homeowners can cut the yard whenever they right. want. But it was another example of just living life differently. And not necessarily conformity with standards. And if you tell yourself to live life differently, you'll find different ways to do that. That sometimes you even question your own judgment. You think, what am I doing? But I just, I literally wrote that down in brackets as you were talking. What does it mean to live life differently for somebody listening in the car? I mean, I just, I think the world takes us in a certain direction. Uh, If you're having success in private equity, there's certain you know, what are the peers doing? Yeah. I guess that's what I should do. Yeah. And you guys have worked really hard to do it differently. And, and we were talking earlier, you know, there's nothing in the Bible about, hey, it's X amount of dollars. That's the holy living standard adjusted for inflation. Unfortunately, yeah. it's not that easy. Yeah. It's, a, it's a daily release and asking God, who's yeah. the owner, right? To what do you want us to do with it? That is a different approach. Yeah. And, and so that's what's kind of. Well, if I can, let me leave yeah. something else. So, and this was another way of living life differently, I think. Probably 16 years into my time at Sterling. And I thought that's where I'd be the rest of my life. Sure. Right. Um, my friends were there. The firm was phenomenal. It was just very successful. Uh, there was no reason to go anywhere. Right, doing in great. Fact, in fact, it got easy because right. great people around me were doing all the hard work, and I got to get the credit. Exactly. The reward. But <clears throat> uh, my wife has, in her family, it's been in her family for 108 years, this chicken company. And I've been on the board for the preceding dozen years, and I really, truly have fell in love with the company. I mean, it's just, it's a great industry. It's a great, great company. We have a great purpose. We're a God-led company. But when my father-in-law would ask me, are you interested in taking this over? My answer was always no. I mean, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm loving what I'm doing. Why would I do this? First of all, I don't have a boss. If I come to work for Mount Air, I'm going to have a boss. It's you, my father-in-law. And why would I want to do that? Right. <laughs> so I got the freedom. I so, got but the, God yeah. started telling me something different. I mean, and, and just the weight on my heart of well, and also there was no necessarily succession answer for the business otherwise and my father-in-law and the business has a tremendous purpose of serving god's plan and if i didn't do this the business may get sold and then that purpose is lost and so for me it became about continuing the purpose of our company not about me not my my, my sort of Business ego had been fulfilled, and this was really about submission to what God wanted. It also meant potentially moving back to Little Rock, which we had not lived in in 30 years, and frankly, had a lot of complications, family complications and other things. 
And so over a two-year period, my wife and I processed this. We said no a couple of times. Um, it was also it was a little challenging to the family, to my wife's family, because of different reasons. And so there was a lot of dynamics. And, and at one point, we just said no. We After prayer and process, and somehow I kept hearing the word persevere. I don't remember if I read it in the Bible. I'm sure that was a component of it um, because despite all my other many, many flaws and lack of faithfulness in some areas, I do spend a lot of time about it, and it's a guiding force for me. Um, and so we went back and said, well, we're going to just persevere and whatever kind of ugliness or difficulty came comes, we're going to, we're going to do it anyway. And we did. And I decided to step out of Sterling, which was complicated because I was very entwined in that. And to take over as CEO of Mount Air. And by the way, all those the challenges just went away. Hmm. They just when we did that, they just went away. They didn't wow. I'd say within months. The stuff that we were worried about was gone. So I'll pause there because I was even sharing with you. You know, as we record this, we're in the midst of a bear market. And, you know, it's easy for, you know, being in a wealth management company, you know, when revenues are down, you're trying to invest. There's just challenges. I'm just picturing somebody in a car driving and they're, you know, they're feeling called to make a big move and it doesn't necessarily make sense mm-hmm. on the face of it. Mm-hmm. So I love that word perseverance, uh, persevere. And I feel like somebody, I just want to put a pin in that. I feel like somebody needs that, that word today. And that when you were obedient, we talk a lot about, you know, mm-hmm. obedience over outcome. Yeah. So you didn't know that was going to happen. Yeah. It could have been rough, right? but that spending time in the word, getting that message from God and just in having unity with your wife. I know that. I mean, I know this was, we walked through that with you and I know that was really hard on both of you. And so that unity to not for you to make a unilateral decision, but you make that with Cheryl. And then, so what might God have on the other side? I mean, you were encouraging me earlier on, on that kind of thing to try to, focus on the obedience and, you know, the short-term issues will melt away if God's in it. I love that. You know, you mentioned my relationship with Cheryl and making decisions together. Honestly, she is my best advisor. (laughs) If I've got a tough issue, which I seem to all the time, a lot of times I make issues tough that aren't, we go for a walk Mm. and I just talk and her wisdom her wisdom, judgment, and advice it just is the best I've received by anybody. It's amazing. It really is. And so, and you would think, well, she's not in it, but does she know? Right. She's able to get out of the weeds and her perception and listen to me and just give me advice and judgment. And it's, it's been a tremendous thing as we do make decisions together. Well, I think one of the unique things about you is that you mentioned it earlier. You said you're a strategic guy. And I think one of the really unique things that you do is kind of strategic planning for your own life. Mm. I don't think many people do that. We were talking about that earlier. Can you share a little about what that process looks like for you? Yeah, sure. Well, there's several components to it. Um, One, I think, started probably 15 years ago, maybe 20, when I just got really interested in leadership. Mm. Did not perceive myself to be a good leader. I knew I had uh, a lot of abilities, but I didn't know much about leadership. I got some advice from some good people. I started studying some things and, and I read a little bit, 
mostly what I read is the is the Bible. And even the Bible has tremendous things to say about leadership. But I I think the first thing I did is I got an executive coach probably 15 years ago. He did a 360 review on me. By the way, he was a faith-based guy, although I didn't really know it. Mm-hmm. Hard in. And he helped me a lot over reshape who I was to people over the next two or three years. And that was a big step. Along with that, I started doing some strategic planning for my life. Mm. And I just came to love it, frankly, yeah. because I'm a bit of an idea person. And so I worked on some long-term strategic plan stuff, big picture stuff, starting with you know a mission statement to my life and my life and my career and probably wrote that 15 years ago maybe even 20 the first time and got input from him from my wife from others and but that really was a help you set the direction of where am i trying to take up because as i say you know you'll go you know what the saying is but basically if you just start off in a direction you'll end up anywhere right, right. If you don't have a plan you're just going to end up you end up anywhere so that was important to me. But then over the last 15 years, something I've done, and I think it's been a very important component of my success and progression and submission is an annual plan. And I advise anybody to do this. I do the same thing. I take about two days at the end of the year or the beginning of the year. And I do a plan for the coming year. And I start with a review of the prior year, which yeah. I think is critical. I go through all of my accomplishments, failures, go through my calendar in detail, life events, write everything down. And the reason is because as driven kind of performing people, it's amazing what we accomplish in you. Yeah. And when you. If you don't even do the second part, which is a plan, I highly advise that you do the first part. Look back over the prior year, write it all out. And for me, that would take typically about four hours and uh, maybe even longer. I may have to come back and think about some things. And I always remember stuff later, too. But life events, kids who got married, births, you know, all, just write it all down. It's amazing what happens in a year. But it also gives you and empowers you the strength for your plan for the next year. Because it is such a boost and encouragement, even if you're stuck, we're not, you know, we, we have periods of stuck. There's still great things that happen in the year if you go searching. And it's an encouragement for the further years for the next year. So the next thing I do is I sit down and I write out what matters to me most. Forget about the plan and just write out the key concepts about what matters to me about our relationship with Christ and what he wants me to do, my relationship with my family, some, some work stuff, some personal stuff, just the things that matter. And that takes about two hours. And then I get into the weight of the plan. And I'll take another four hours and I'll write out personal and professional objectives for the next year. And there might be, now some people say if you do focus on more than three to five things and you, you can't you know, do it effectively, but I'll have 15 to 20 personal objectives and 15 to 20 professional objectives. And I think you can do a lot more than you think you can. Now, that are three or four of them the most important? Yes. But if I get all 15 of them done in a year and I compound that times 10 years or 20 years, it's amazing what happens year after year. So I love that process. 
it is the most, it's probably my favorite two days of the year. Then though, once you get these 15 objectives, personal and professional, something that I do, you have to do, I believe, is you got to put them in quarters. I put them in quarters. I was going to ask how, how often you look at it. So you have well, to have a process so, so, to get back to Yeah, it. so first of all, I put them in quarters because if you got 30 things on the list and it's January 3rd and you're looking at the list going, oh my goodness. I'm right, I'm this. behind. Yeah. No, some of these things, I'm not going to start till the third quarter. Right. right? Stuff has, so you, I put them in literally a little, little yeah. draw a little lines and I put them down in a quarter. Okay, that one, I'm going to start the third quarter. That one will be the fourth quarter. It allows you to do that. And then once I get in the first, so then I'll have my plan for January. Simple, not not too crazy, but January, I hope to work on these things. And then February, you know, so each month. So my point is, if you really want to have, take control of the direction, and by the way, do not ever miss or forget that everything I'm talking about is submitting to God's plan. So mm-hmm. I may have my plan and, you know, I may have my plan, but God's purpose is what matters, as the Bible says. So submitting to that, this is a very prayerful exercise. Those two days are a deeply spiritual, prayerful exercise for me to get that outlined. A couple of important things to remember in the plan. One, I control the plan does not control me. So if I'm seven days into it, okay, let me give you, let me give you an example of a bad situation. Mm-hmm. Last January 1, part of my plan was to lose X amount of weight in the first 30 days. It had been a bad year prior and I had to take it off. January 1, I tell Cheryl that I've started this diet and she thinks, oh no, here goes Kat. I know what this is going to be like. So January 1, she's made black eyed peas, some, some cabbage, some cornbread, nothing really bad, but I'm doing no bread, no alcohol, no caffeine. I call it the no fun diet <laughs> for 30 days. So she comes to me with a bite of cornbread that she's just made to put it in my mouth and I reject it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was the plan controlling right, me right. rather than me controlling the plan. So remember, you, you know, you control the plan. Good example. And number two is people matter over the plan. Always, always put the plan aside. If you have a, a friend that needs something, crisis or whatever, you put the plan aside and people need I think it's back to that letting God guide it, right? He can guide the big picture plan, the annual plan, but then he's going to bring pivots yeah. and you got to be willing to pivot yeah. with them. I really like that. So Kevin, that's just awesome. Uh, what There's just so many nuggets of wisdom that you've already shared with everybody. But as we wrap up, you know, this is a podcast kind of from business owners to business owners and we try to get really practical. I mean, I thought you were getting really practical there. So you can kind of go back to anything you said, but, you know, maybe it's just on this plan. But, you know, if somebody's, you know, running on the treadmill and it's like, man, that's awesome. But how do I even get started? What area? Maybe from the plan? It may, is it the annual review? Yeah. What's kind of on your heart to well, share to I, the other business? Owners? I would start with what is the purpose of your life? Ooh, yeah. Just what's the purpose of your life? And just pray and submit and read about that. And that'll set you in a direction and whatever your direction is, whether you get into expensive planning or you don't, if you don't have a purpose for your life, you'll just fall into anything. And we all do. And I do. I mean, look, I I make this sound like I've got it nailed. I don't, right? I make stupid mistakes like rejecting my wife's cornbread, you know, on a daily basis. 
But if you don't have the purpose to go back to when you make those mistakes, you're going to continue to struggle. So I'd start with what's your purpose? I love that because. And by the way, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily ascribe to the soft purpose. Of, well, my purpose is to be a light. Well, actually, I do think a big part of my purpose is to be a light. Okay, but put practice in a little that. more specific. Put practice in that. What yeah. does that mean? Yeah. You know, loving people as God's called us to love people. It is an act. Love is an action. Put it into practice. It's not a feel good. I love that. And we were talking earlier about, you know, got all these business owners listening and they're most of them do strategic planning. The successful ones all have a strategic plan at work. Yeah. Which always starts with a vision mission statement. All you're, I think, calling people do is use that strategic brain that you're uniquely given and encouraging them to do that a little bit. Just start with the vision and mission statement for themselves, a purpose statement, as you say. So I love that as a practical tip. And uh, Kevin, just thanks a lot for doing this. This has been a great heck for me, and I'm sure for lots of people listening. So thank you for being on the podcast today. Absolutely. And now if we can, let's go play some golf. Okay, let's do that. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.